Welcome to Season 7 of Beyond the Jargon, a conversation with grad students about their research journey here at the University of Victoria from CFUV 101.9 FM. This episode was created on the traditional territory of the Songhees, Eskimos, and West Sandwich peoples, whose historical relationships with the land continue to this day. I am your host, Taiwo Afolabi. It's really nice to have you today, Ellen. Thank you. Thank you for including me. Do you want to just introduce yourself? We want, uh, it would be nice for our listeners out there to know who you are and um, what you're doing here. Thanks. So my name is Elaine LeBarish. I am a PhD student in sociology, and I look at how poverty shapes students' experiences. I'm originally from Treaty 6 territory, the University of Alberta, and I've been here two years. (laughs) I would want to start by asking, how did you come to this research? Um, So it's been a bit of a journey. I was took me 15 years to finish my first undergrad degree, and I did it in theater and English. And I was trying to write plays about looking at big social problems, and but I didn't have the language or vocabulary to understand them. And it was when I um, took a sociology class that I found that missing piece about looking at why is there social injustice. And poverty became my focus because I come from generational poverty and I started to see how it affected um, people differently and who had access to school and who didn't because most of the females in my family on the one side have never had access to education. So I started thinking about ways that this could change if we could access education. So that's what I did in my master's. I spent nine months with three undergrad students to find out how growing up in poverty was shaping their lives in university and off the university landscape. And then I'm, as my friend Charity says, who's at the University of Alberta, that I'm taking that from the, the trenches to the grassroot and looking how um, the Shoestring Initiative that I'm a lead founder in at the University of Victoria, how that this initiative can support students and other UVic community members who come from poverty to support us, not only in, in getting to school and through school, but having really positive experiences so that then we can go create changes for the next generations coming along. Interesting. So how do you define poverty? Okay. So this is the biggest um, contentious issue with my research. <laughs> People get very upset about this. So um Leave the room if you're going to get upset. Uh, So it's defined subjectively, and that means by human beings define poverty based on lived experiences. So, and the intersection of lots of different social characteristics. So, for example, I'm a, not only from generational poverty, but I am a generational settler. I am 54. Um, You know, I've got my religious beliefs and, and, sexual orientations and all those things factor in together. So we don't look at it from an economics point of view. And as a a brilliant student said to me, it's how we experience poverty, how we experience injustice, how we experience the fear of not being able to pay tuition, you know, how we experience interactions with 
professors and faculty members. So that lived experience is absolutely critical because I'm not the gatekeeper of lived experience and I don't get to set some threshold of what is the right experience to say that you come from poverty. So so we really move away from those definitions. And so I, I know all the counter arguments, and, but it's really critical to honor people's lives in the making. So, so you're saying, it, I mean, defining poverty is beyond just economic parameters. Absolutely. Correct? So why is this really important to you? Why did you, why do you decide to take on this research? Why is this, why, I mean, you're so passionate about it. <laughs> well, um, yeah, it's interesting that I'm passionate about it because it's not, it's, often it's not happy <laughs> research, but you do have to be passionate about your research or um, you'll never survive it. But it was, it was in an undergrad class, I think it was my second or third sociology class, and there were um, a lot of students who would come in late and they'd be carrying like their Tim Horton coffee cups and in their bags of muffins and they would come in late and be disruptive and and I was a very mature student <laughs> so I would been in my later 40s and our teacher said to us um, so she was talking about a theory and she goes well, so what are your routines for the day before you come to class and I well I brush my teeth thinking you know and so there was several students um, white male students who self-identified as being rich because their parents are rich. And they talked about how they would stop and get this breakfast, and then they would get their cards, cars detailed at the car wash. And they proceeded throughout the semester to call poor people white trash. And that was that first moment that I realized what the label was of the women, the genera- women I come from in all our generations. And I had no capacity to challenge in a sociology class what this means. And it was absolutely devastating for me. It took me several years to get over the, just the trauma of that and that people could think this is funny. And so then I just started doing a bit more research and what does white trash mean? And then connecting with some professors who around the world who truly, truly care about dealing with all this injustice and inequality and we're, and are so respectful for for students whose lives are shaped by these things and so then I was fortunate to um, be put in well I had a, a great teacher Sarah at the University of Alberta who I did a little um, pilot research project on this and I met some students and then that was an eye-opening experience so it's how I did the research became really important because I had to use just a single interview and it was traumatizing for everybody involved. So then I found narrative ways of doing research where you spend the time to get to know each other. And the more time I spent with students and we were able to talk without the shame and stigma and to start to create informal communities of support, then I just kept going and seeing in my PhD, can we actually make a difference right now? Not four years from now, when I publish a dissertation or articles, but right now, because there's lives that are being impacted, including my own right now. So that's why I'm passionate about it, because there's so many people who should be here who won't get to come here. And I'm not saying university is the end all of anything, but education, we know, is, is a big mitigating factor for dealing with generational poverty. So. Yeah. 
Well, interesting. Um, so how, how do you get your research to create change that you desire? And, and I'm hoping that you can speak about the initiative, the shoestring initiative. So I would just go back just a little bit to the University of Alberta. Um, we just started to have this grassroots change start happening because students started connecting with other students and they started just informally going, how can we support one another? And then very good friend at the University of Alberta decided she was going to take this up. And there was informally professors who knew who would make sure that students would feel comfortable to come and talk to them. These are usually student professors who are coming from the same background, social class background. And then one of the, the great outcomes of uh, my master's research was that and we didn't realize this, but participants and myself, again, the language is problematic to say participant, the humans in my, um, we t- we're teaching each other how to s- advocate for ourselves individually and collectively. So much to the dismay of, I'm sure some people at this university, I took up that advocacy and get, kept going. So I'd wondered what would be the point of keeping on with this if it wasn't going to make change. So the idea was, okay, how could I more formally do what I was doing at the U of A? So this is where the shoestring initiative came from and a couple professors I was put into contact with. And so now we've been building this. So, I mean, it's a slow building process because we're getting some institutional support, but not in terms of policies and space and regulations. But now we're seeing students connecting with other students. We use food as a way to build community. Uh, there's professors who are coming alongside and how can we start talking about this and making sure that it's we're creating this community this initial part of creating a community of advocacy support and membership from day one or even before that would be you know the ideal of what we're looking at all the way through and then how can we share this with other universities and colleges people who want to take up this work how can we share knowledge because every, you know, place, geography, different social characteristics shape all this. So it's been really important, you know, some students have said, if it would, if I wouldn't have connected via shoestring, they still wouldn't be able to be standing here. So that grassroots work really shows that while it maybe can't um, push the privilege pillars, it can do critical work so that um, it is a really amazing educational experience and a holistic one and so that's where we're really gaining ground with the shoestring initiative so yeah so uh, I'm not sure I mean you've not yet done your field work uh, planning to do it and would you I'm, I'm wondering uh, can you talk us through how your field research would Okay. look like right yeah well i know it's it's like i need that research application signed <laughs> so this is what i imagine because i can see it, uh, doing a mixed methods because i really want to use poetic inquiry because poetry is so profound and i don't want to and i didn't and i didn't do it in my masters and i don't want to do it now is making sure that i'm not taking and appropriating people's lived experiences and, extracting, yeah. Yeah, and messing them around. Yeah. So that combined with, I see participatory action. So imagining that if students coming alongside and we're in groups together, focus groups together, and coming up with not just exploring our lived experiences, but what do we 
as a collective see are the pressing issues, not my deciding like I did in my master's. I decided what the research puzzle question was. I decided on the methodology. I decided on how that thesis was going to look, even though it was shared with participants and they could make changes. But this has to be by and for all people involved in it. So the research agenda is figured out together. What are the most pressing issues? What are the questions that we want to explore? And then we collectively create that dissertation, which I imagine to be a documentary or a play or workshops like this. And we're co-creating everything from start to finish. So we now have something by and for community that can now be taken up and used anywhere. So I don't own it. So I am not in the center because I'm always going to be a participant in my research because of where I come from. But me, but there was I had some tensions with the way I did my master's because I didn't feel it was quite community-based the way I needed it to be. Interesting. So, yeah. so uh, what, are the, what are the challenges that you have faced or you continue to face mm -hmm. as you go on with your research? Um, straight up. Um, class-based discrimination and age-based discrimination, gender discrimination. Um, it is not fun to come out of the social underclass closet when you don't have community, family, resources to be able to survive um, in a place that that you, you... I didn't grow up here. I'm not from here. The university's new. Um, being a mature female has been had some real challenges when you add those things together because there's a lot of dominant narratives that people carry inside including myself that we don't even realize some other challenges have been my challenging that universities perpetuate privilege um you know i try not to do this in foot stomping ways i try to walk in good ways and be relational but getting a seat at the table to make you know, a university understand why they need to be the leader in this and not just do what other universities are doing, but, you know, demonstrate that edge, that be the first in the country, because this is groundbreaking stuff happening in Canada, because Canada is so behind other countries in widening access to universities for students from low socioeconomic status, or I just use the term poverty. And even just accessing, you know, literature. There's so much literature on students from working class backgrounds, but poverty gets left out, and there is a poverty working class divide. So, trying to make room in these, you know, corporate universities to try to get space for why this matters, and we don't have years to wait to try to to fix the problem. Um, it's been really difficult to get any kind of movement with federal and provincial governments to why social class is absolutely critical. So, you know, I contribute always to poverty reduction strategies, but it's just, it ends up just being tragic how little this is being addressed. Oh, wow. Um, well, what, what impact do you think your research is having currently? Um, Maybe I don't even want to use the word research. Maybe I'll say your community engagement, you know, and, and, and what you're doing with different people um, and, and, and the Shustring Initiative and, and whether when you were, you know, doing your master's or even now that you're doing your PhD, 
what are the results and the impact that you're seeing that your research has really produced over the years? Right. And that this is a really great question, and thank you, because it's, it's, it's a problematic question in terms of, of institutions that are looking for metrics. Okay, so give me the statistics on. Well, how can I give you statistics on how this is echoing across lives and shaping lives? So, for example, and I'm not saying it was because of my research. There was a student, lovely, lovely student, Mildred, who finally graduated. There was another student who walked across the stage after all those years and got their eagle feather. But this is shaping their children and their family, and this is how we create sustainable, long-lasting change, is how then we take that and use it to impact others and support others who want to make journeys. So I know, for example, that in in the way I, I, I do my work and the way I talk about it, over these years is that people are rethinking those stories planted in them and how they understand it and how they experience it. And so for here, when I think about the Shoestring Initiative, for example, we have agency. This isn't from the top down, here's some prescriptive, okay, so here's here, we'll, we'll give you some mentoring for a couple months and, you know, maybe a gift certificate for a textbook. So this is, this is, you know, right from the beginning to the end that you are with people who you speak the same code, the same language. You're not afraid to say, I'm hungry. Hmm. Like in, in, the first, in the first gathering we had, we're having to encourage students to take food home because I, when I cook, I cook a lot of food. <laughs> it comes from growing up on a farm with no money, so you've got to have lots of filler food like potato salad and all that kind of stuff. So really starting to, to deal with that because there is so much shame and stigma attached to it that you end up hiding. And, you know, I'm sorry I'm making, I'm sounding like I'm making generalizations, but this is a common thread that, that is woven through stories. And so when I see students coming together organically to support one another and to reach out to other students. And then I see the support of, of some departments and, and things like the Graduate Student Society um, in the things, you know, that they make sure they help me put up posters and put the word out in those things. So you know that people are deeply engaged and that they want to create these changes and they want to have the conversations. They don't know how to have conversations, maybe. So... It is one of the things I think is really powerful happening is that it's change that is being sustained. So it isn't, the Shoestring Initiative is not about any person. So it needs to to have a life beyond me or anybody else. Interesting. So I wanted to ask, what's, what's, the, what's the, I love the metaphor of shoe. Why did he, well, why, we originally wanted no. Originally, we wanted dandelion. Okay, then there is some <laughs> there is some gender tensions. We wanted dandelion because for many of us, dandelions are so resilient. They're seen as weeds. You try to cut them down, but they are just so resilient. They'll grow anywhere. They'll grow alone. They'll grow in groups. They sustain wildlife. They. Good. So this is we originally wanted. Yeah, the dandelion. So we're gonna have a dandelion in our logo somehow. <laughs> okay. So so the rest is a, just a gendered tension yeah. in conversation. <laughs> Interesting, but I mean the the idea of, uh, the idea of shoes and, yeah. and 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 I mean thinking from um, 
as as an as an African yep. and, and someone coming from a different part of the world, uh, you want to see how rich someone is. Look at their shoes. You know, this is interesting because growing up, I mean, we had hand me downs from hand me downs, clothes dropped off in black garbage bags in the middle of the night, and so. Yes. So even on my Echoes of Poverty website, you know, I got a pair of poor... And you're right. You know, I do look at shoes and, and you can tell, um, or I probably will be going off topic, but distressed jeans, <laughs> where most of us from poverty, we we had them distressed naturally <laughs> versus hundreds of dollars to buy distressed jeans. <laughs> so, but yes, um, it's it's... Yes, I do notice those things. So there's lots of different and lots of different ways in you can read into and experience the name, which is the beauty of it because it's how I think about shoes or you think about shoes is not the same as somebody else and could wear understand it completely differently. You know, not even affording be able to afford shoelaces. You know, <laughs> well, and and that yeah. brings me back to you know the 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 idea of. Um, you know the central theme of mm-hmm. your work, of your research, which is which is on which is on poverty, and and I, what are the social contentions that you or social and, and social connections to your work? Um, so an example we're talking about before we started this mm-hmm. is how you know just student loan, right. how it really impacts people, right. or just not having the money to you know, to apply to a school or not being able to have good house to leave and and how all of those social realities really, you know, really affect students and even it affects where they will live, it affects whether they will have kids for some of them or not, yep. or they don't want to pass their, they don't want their kids to inherit yes. <laughs> their student and all of that. Yep. So I'm kind of interested, I wonder if you can kind of speak to that in terms of the connection of, you know, the idea of poverty really broadening it to for our listeners and, uh, you know, to really understand that we're not just talking about money here or economy no. alone, but really those other bigger issues in the right. society. So we can, um, one of the things that we can focus on is housing. Now, if you have come from generational poverty, or it could be first generation poverty, and let's say you and you know you have a, a single mom with her kids, and they're always dealing with being on the verge of homeless or homeless. So all of a sudden. You're living in a city where you're trying to go to school, where housing crisis exists and housing costs are so much. That housing crisis and lack of affordability and accessibility, how you experience that can be extremely traumatizing. So imagine a student who has to move several times in a semester because maybe they got renovicted or demovicted, just even the fear and worrying about those things. So when we're talking about, you know, housing issues in this country, there's not an equal way that we experience it. And, and we know things are getting worse. And as we talked about, absolutely, we think about incidentals while having to choose between, I won't eat for two days because I need to print out my papers for my class. I mean, these are big things that 
do you even want to go tell anybody? Being able to access emergency funding, even knowing how to do that. There was a single mom who explained to me she was in university for several years before she even found out that there was um, housing aid. And by, t- by the time she went through the whole process, which is like 30 or 60 pages, she had to take out the time off work to do this and then pay for the costs. And, and, and we don't even know how to navigate all this. So how we're experiencing those things, these are all part of larger, why do we have these big problems? Why do we still have this horrible problem with poverty that is escalating? Homeless rates are increasing. All of these things. You know, we're not even talking about Canada does not even know how many students are homeless in universities and colleges. Neither does the United States, by the way. There's just guesses, which these rates are increasing. You know, there's single moms living in beat up cars, trying to get access to education to get out of poverty. But we're not even having those conversations and really need to be because any semblance of democracy and any kind of equity requires that education is accessible. But we also know there's a problem with different kinds of education and quality of education depending on your social location, geography, those kind of things. When Kesia just uh, joining us, uh, we've been talking with um, Ellen Laberge. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) She's a PhD candidate at the um, Department of Sociology here at the University of Victoria. And her research and community engagement really focuses on the idea of poverty and how that really affects different different people across across you know the social spectrum in the society. Um, another question I'm going to ask you, really, mm-hmm. it's it, maybe this might be very personal, but is how has your research really impacted you as a researcher, as a collaborator, as a student researcher? Um, as a participant researcher or as a policymaker in the making <laughs> uh, and and you know and you're navigating these social realities in different ways how has that really impacted you what have you learned over the years and how is that really helping you in those various uh, dimensions well I think it's made me a far better human being um, not that I'm known for being mean but what's been really critical is I grew up believing that it's the individual's fault. So I blamed my mother, but not the absent father. Because those those were the stories I was taught. Um, early experiences on early education landscapes was, I was not worthy of an education. So I internalized this social class and I really, really believed it. And my research has really made me dedicated to this is has to be everything in life needs to be something more than just about me, way way bigger than me. Um, I just read *Man's Search for Meaning* for a class, and it was one of those tipping points of getting back grounded about this has to be for something, not just so I can go. Oh, Elaine, the PhD. So I, you know, I've had some really amazing capital T teachers who have been instrumental in helping me unpack and understand all those stories planted in me that blame the individual instead of looking at the big reasons for this. Yes, so, you know, I can still get caught and go, oh God, why am I judging 
that person, I instantly went to judgment instead of, of not. Um, the research has been, and, and the whole journey has been really important in terms of advocating for myself and for others because university has always terrified me. I've never, ever been comfortable on these landscapes. And, you know, that is a common theme of these are foreign places that were built for white privileged men. And so I'm really taking an active part in learning so that I can do better work, then I can remain focused on this has to be about making things better, both at the in, both at individual levels, lives, including my own, but also in that bigger community and society. I mean, ultimately, it would just be so nice to be able to say at the end of this, wow, look at this big shift in society's views. But, but that little bit will help. And, and I think that's really a big thing. And I really, it wasn't until I came here that I started dealing with the gendered issues. And uh, there's a very dear friend here, Renee, who's who's really knows her feminism stuff, who's been helping me really understand that piece that I was scared to address because I come from a generation where women don't speak. And you can't risk having a male boss get mad at you and firing you because then you're going to be homeless. So that's been a really hard thing to come alongside. And and it, and it needs to be addressed um, because, you know, um, it's gender-based. I mean, we can't ignore that gender piece. But I know that um, I feel more comfortable in my own skin and that I'm living in a way that matters to me and my values because I've never been a greedy person. I just have never lived that way to, to have it all about me. So I suppose that's one of the things that sustains me even when I just feel like, what have I done? <laughs> so what, what message would you like to kind of tell university leaders and, and, um, and even students uh, in terms of what you want them to know and you want them to act upon? Maybe, you know, it's as a result of your research or your community mm -hmm. engagement. So well, I would like university leaders um, to decide that they really want to be leaders. And although universities are autonomous and, you know, the accountability in terms of society, you know, the public isn't opening the doors and asking the questions, is one university in Canada, just please take the lead and let's sit down and talk about how we can create some change right now. Because on the shoestringinitiative.com website, we've got some work that some other people are doing that is absolutely amazing. The other thing I would like university leaders and students and the whole community to understand is that charity sucks. When you're on the receiving end of charity, it's not fun. I'm so grateful for places, for example, like the food bank, but we need to ask, why do we have these things? We shouldn't, in this country, have those who are going without. It, it, it's just absolutely troubling to me. I would like students whose lives are shaped by poverty to know that you can contact me anytime. The Shoestring Initiative is just, it's grassroots from the ground up. Um, it is a group of gracious people where more people are coming. You're not alone on this journey. And that's what we keep talking about. 
you're absolutely not alone and isolated. Um, because this poverty can be really hard on you mentally and emotionally. Not to mention how physically it impacts you when you're not eating healthy and these kind of things. But if a small group can be already creating some echoes and reverberations, one university, and it'll only take one, one university or one college, and we can start, you know, creating some some change, you know, at that policy level, because it doesn't need to take years. We just have to address that universities are supposed to be for the public good. It's supposed to make things better in society. That's what they're supposed to be here for. And if that's not happening, then I think we all need to question and understand that we don't all experience being here the same way. So let's honor every single life because there's big, big consequences if we can't finish. What are those um, aspects of policy that you think is really perpetuating poverty okay. within the context of higher education okay. now? Yep. Are there are there specific policies or areas that yep. you think that policy can actually you know can actually help us you know right. maybe in housing and I mean right. whatever it is but okay. really that is perpetuating poverty within the uh, higher education or that can actually reduce it if they, we actually look into those aspects. So I'm going to say equity, diversity, and inclusion (EDI) is is the acronym, and this is where um, there is a big challenge because it excludes social class. And it's based on the federal government's definition of the Federal Employment Equity Act. And there's there's no laws against discrimination based on poverty. It's not covered under the Human Rights Act. So therefore, down the chain, it's not addressed. So how can you have true equity, diversity, and inclusion, whatever that means, without including this critical piece? Because then you're not addressing that at the heart of universities is perpetuating that social class privilege. And that is not, this isn't like a life-altering change that needs to be made. It's not like it has to go through all these, this chain of administrations and then to the board of directors and then to the provincial governments to talk about. That change can be made instantly. And I'm not saying the change, you know, having change at, at, at you know, at the, at the pillar level is not going to take time because you're talking about changing a culture. But if you look at Amarillo, Amarillo College in Texas, that president, they did a 180 in that culture shift. And the program's called No Excuses. So there's no more excuses for students from poverty suffering and failing. And, and their policies are instantaneous. You short $15 to pay your electric bill, here's 15 bucks. And they know that, that simply at $15 can be the make or break for a student continuing or not. Because this ongoing poverty and the stress of it is not sustainable. And so, of course, we don't have stats on socioeconomic status of students, other than, I suppose, if you were to, you know, Edmonton look at postal codes, for examples. But still, that's not telling us what we need to know. So we're not collecting those statistics. Um, okay, I'm a storyteller and nerd person, but you know, okay, some numbers might be might be helpful, and so we don't even have a way to show those metrics of of 
you know, my, the research I do and, and the community based and what shoestring can mean. But these are like some really critical things. And I would like ask universities, I would ask the federal government who funds education. I would ask Universities Canada, who's supposed to be the voice of, is not supposed to be, sorry, that sounded rude, um, of Canadian universities and all the provincial governments that deal with advanced education to really look at what equity, diversity and inclusion includes and excludes. Interesting. Wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, your, your walk is just really... It's now really, you know why yeah. nobody invites me over for parties. <laughs> <laughs> no, your walk is really amazing because it's really, it's really touching areas that I think that, that are going to make us very uncomfortable mm -hmm. um, as a society uh, and then really, really facing the truth, you know. Mm -hmm. I feel that your research is really helping us to start having courageous conversations around these critical things that are so, so, so important. Thank you so much for Yeah, just for quickly, I just work. wanted just to let you know that in having these uncomfortable conversations, there's this beautiful um, theorist philosopher, Marie Lagones, and she talks about loving versus arrogant perception. And in world traveling, she means like quotes around world, not like literally, you don't have to afford to go. And we can have these uncomfortable conversations in loving ways and walk in good ways. And, you know, I've got my own stuff I'm, I'm still trying to unpack and deal with, but, but we can have them and we can create change, but it has to be collectively. So, but thank you so much for, for the opportunity. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, well, uh, we'll draw the curtain for uh, Beyond the Jargon in this episode. It's been... It's been over and uh, close to an hour with Elaine LaBerge. Uh, she's doing uh, her PhD in sociology, focusing on poverty. Uh, thank you so much, Elaine. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Jargon on CFUV 101.9 FM. For interviewees, contact information, or to listen to this episode again, visit cfuvpodcast.com. You can also subscribe, read, or review Beyond the Jargon and other CFUV podcasts uh, wherever you get your podcasts.